As I continue to fully embrace the onset of uh, middle age, a couple things I've been doing more are classic middle age guy things that really intensify into being an old guy. And that is watching cowboy movies and watching war movies. I don't know why, there's, there's that, that siren call that gets louder and louder. And you know, one of the most classic of all World War II movies is The Bridge on the River Kwai. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It's a, a fictional story about the building of the Burma Railway. You see, during World War II, uh, the Japanese were occupying Burma, and they had a lot of troops there, and they needed to increase the efficiency in getting more supplies through. And so they were building this railway, and as it went over a particular river, they needed a bridge, and so they took POWs, allied POWs, and made them start building it. Now, in the movie, what happens, as they begin to build this, the POWs recognize, you know, connecting Rangoon and Bangkok is going to mean bad news for the allies. So why don't we take it slow, make a lot of mistakes, try and be kind of problematic. But in the film, there's a gentleman, an officer named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, who over time begins to see the shoddy work being done and react against it and think, we're, we're British and we ought to do work that's fitting of British people and, and let's build the best bridge we can. It'll raise morale to accomplish something and this war will be over at some point, and this monument to how hardworking and in the ingenuity of the British people will persist. They even improve the design and the location, and they begin building this, and he's driving the other POWs, rather than to, to work slowly and poorly, to work hard and do a great job. And as they build this thing, this, this officer, Nicholson, begins to lose sight of what's really happening here. And he takes sort of ownership of this. In fact, he starts asking that the, the Japanese soldiers help as well so that they can do it better and faster. Meanwhile, the Allies learn that there's going to be a train coming through, and it's going to contain many Japanese soldiers and some higher-ups and dignitaries and officers and things, and they think, if we can blow up this bridge, as the train goes over it, that would be a great advance for the cause of the war, for the cause of freedom in, in World War II. And sort of the, the plug your ears if you're going to see it later, but then the, it won't help the sermon. One, at the climax of this thing, a strike team of like commandos comes in to blow up the bridge. And this British officer, played by Alec Guinness, sees them about to do it. And without thinking, tries to stop them. Begins to defend this bridge because he's built this bridge, even though blowing it up will help the cause that he has been fighting for and willing to die for. So often, our own pride, our own narrow-minded and narrow sight on that thing I'm doing or my place in this effort can overshadow what God is doing, the greater effort. And I think that's quite a, a fitting illustration there, and I think we see another one here in Acts Chapter 21, this may be a passage that you read when you're going through it and just kind of say, that was a weird one. Paul just bought haircuts for four guys. So, okay. But I believe we see in this a beautiful humbling oneself before the Lord, even when it is difficult. An example that can challenge us and inspire us and equip us as we try to build something for the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 9 Paul says, I have become all things to all people 
that by all possible means I might save some. And I think the next verse is key. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He's doing this for the sake of the gospel. It would be so easy for Paul, who's famous, Paul, who's held up and revered. We read in Corinth, there are even those who call themselves followers of Paul. It would be so easy for him to start thinking about his legacy, doing things so that uh, those who came after would look and go, wow, that guy was, that guy was on point. He was an amazing apostle. Instead, he's motivated by the greater cause. Yes, he builds a bridge here and here, but if it will serve the kingdom of God to blow it up, he's willing to do it. Last week, Paul said, stop crying. You're breaking my heart. Stop telling me not to go to Jerusalem because I'm going to be arrested and imprisoned. I know that. And don't you know that I am ready to die for the gospel? I am willing to lay down my life and die. And I think we see something in this passage that's even more impressive, and that's that Paul is willing to live for the gospel. And that might sound less impressive, but I don't know if it is. I think it's very common, if you were to ask people who identify as Christians, would you be willing to die for your faith? I think many would say, oh yeah, absolutely. If it came down to it, I would lay down my life. I would die for my faith. Okay, how many hours did you spend in prayer today? Or in the scriptures? How many times have you been to worship in the last month or two? If this thing is so valuable to you that you would die for it, are you living for it? I think that in our setting... The, the fact that it's so infinitesimally small a chance that we'll ever be asked to die for our faith, it's a pretty safe claim to make. I mean, what are the odds that I am going to actually be called on it? Rather, we should be asking, will I die to myself and take up my cross every day and live for Jesus? That one is a 100% chance I will be called upon to do it. In fact, this is what Jesus calls us to do. Will you live for the sake of the name, for the sake of the gospel, the, the job we've been given to do, the kingdom that we've been called to herald? And we see then here that, that after he's rebuked them and said, don't cry, it's, it, I know what's happening, I'm willing to die, and he comes to Jerusalem, and as he arrives there, meets up with James and the brothers, the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, there are two Jameses among Jesus' 12 disciples. This is neither of them. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament. We've seen him already in the book of Acts. You see him elsewhere throughout the scriptures. James is one who is very zealous for the law. He's a Christian. He follows Jesus and he has not in any way distanced himself from his Jewish identity. And so there are people following James, and many of them, especially because the church is rooted in Jerusalem, where the, the Christian church began as a movement within Judaism, that they're all Jewish Christians. We saw in Acts 15 what we call the Jerusalem Council, where it came to a head. Do we have to require Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus to be circumcised, to keep all these ceremonial laws? And together, James and Paul and the apostles said, no. Tell them they don't have to be circumcised. Just don't eat you know, the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Avoid sexual immorality. Basic stuff here. But now we find there's still been something sort of under the surface. That this, this budding, building conflict has not entirely gone away. 
as we join them uh, already in progress, we see, and, and by the way, Mnason. Who names their kid Mnason? We see he goes into the home of a rather rich guy, uh, Mnason, and there he gives an account of what has happened. Now, this is something that seems to happen at the end of each of Paul's missionary journeys. On the following day, James and all the elders were present, and after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. The things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Notice the way that's worded. And I think Luke is very intentional here. Not he told them the things that he, Paul, had done, but the things that God had done through Paul's ministry. What Paul had done was preach a sermon so long and so boring that that poor kid fell asleep and fell out the window and died. What God had done is raised that kid from the dead and called many from death into eternal life. What God has done is what we should lift up and celebrate, and we should celebrate it as what God is doing. Uh, on Friday, I went to a training with our general secretary of the American Baptist Churches USA, the, the big kahuna, Lee Spitzer, someone for whom I have an awful lot of respect. And he was training us in how the church can prevail over the next 80 years. Now that Christianity is no longer the sort of baseline in the West. And he was talking about how our culture had changed. And he said a great example of that is the prevalence of the selfie, a picture of yourself. He said, if you were in the 80s, you had friends who went to, to France and they came back and they said, hey, you want to come over and see our slides? You'd be like, not really, but I feel like I have to. And you'd go over and they would say, look here. In fact, my parents still do this. They, they say, this is the Eiffel Tower. This is the Sistine Chapel. This is whatever, whatever. And they go through all the things they saw on this trip through Europe. And each one is as close as it can get, framing the thing as well as possible in, in the picture. Now what do we do? Here I am, and in the background you can sort of see the Eiffel Tower. I'm the focal point. I'm the one that's in focus. I'm the one taking up most of the frame. And when he was, he was preaching on this, a verse popped into my head, and it was John the Baptist saying, I must decrease and he must increase. And how we frame our Christian faith today is that we are increased and he is decreasing. And we're right in the middle of the frame. That's not how they were viewing these things when Paul reported all that God had done among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry. It's God who should be lifted up and glorified even though we so often want to redistribute his glory. By the way, this is one of many reasons why it's so important for us to gather together with the saints regularly. It helps us to look away from ourselves and put the spotlight back on him. And notice that he didn't just give them the broad strokes. Well, we went here and went here. Like, we can read this missionary journey in five to ten minutes, but Paul went through one by one a detailed report of all that God had done. It doesn't tell us if anyone fell asleep or fell out a window, but it tells us one by one he went through. He left nothing out. Now, let me ask you this. In your prayer life today, I mentioned how, how much have you prayed on a given day this week as you uh, maybe in the morning over your coffee or in the evening as you lay in bed, as you, as you went to God in prayer, 
Did you go one by one through the things that God had done for you and thank him? Did you have even time for that? One can't do that in three minutes or five. Did you go one by one through the sins that you have to confess of which you must repent and be forgiven by Jesus? It's, it's so easy for us to do the quick flyover because we're so very busy. There's so many selfies to take in so many different places that it's hard to take time one by one to give God the glory and the thanks for what he's done in our midst. And yet, weirdly, it seems that for us as humans, it's easy to get someone to start listing one by one the things that bug them about maybe their boss or a coworker, or even their spouse. So oh, I, I can get going on that, and, and how long do you have? But when it comes time to thank God and praise Him for what He has done through us and for us, it's easy to just slide on by. Well, Paul did not. One by one, a detailed report. They heard the report and praised not Paul, but God. Again, we want to often steal God's glory or at least give a little to someone else, some to ourselves. And, and because we are always uh, an idolatrous people, we always fight against that. Luther said the human heart is an idol factory. Because of that, we have to be careful never to take... The, was it Calvin? You just gave me a look. Calvin said the human heart was an idol factory. I'll snip that out and put it back in there when I put this on the web. Uh, it, it's so easy for us to say... Uh, oh, maybe, maybe we'll lift this person up and put them on a pedestal, on an altar. We'll, put, we'll lift this person up over here. And God will not be mocked, and he will not share his glory with anyone. And we say, well, musicians, I mean, they should, athletes, even preachers. I mean, these people here, they, they, these, these prominent national figures, they, they give so much glory to God, shouldn't they get a cut? No! And if they are biblically preaching, they don't want a cut. And you don't do them any favors by giving them some glory that is due God. And, you know, when we go through and we maybe sometimes begin to list one by one all the things that bug us about someone or something, we grumble. That often begins to spread. It gets a life of its own. We see that happening in Israel. You can see that happening in a workplace or in a home. But here we see the opposite being true. That when Paul rehearses all the glorious things that God has done, what happens? That is contagious. James then talks about all the, the amazing things going on amongst the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. But it's short-lived. I mentioned last time that this missionary journey does not end like the first one and the second one with a bang with a, here's what happened, and a, wow, God is great, and attaboy. A celebration of what has been accomplished, rather with a lot of sorrow and kind of this short trail of tears leading into Jerusalem. There's this one moment of praise to God for what he's done with you, praise to God for what he's doing amongst us, and then immediately we turn to rumors and rebukes and accusations, followed by damage control. You see, brothers... How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. This is James speaking. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. 
What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. So there's this moment of, isn't God great? And then suddenly spinning back down into a reality, a rumor mill, things being passed around and spread through hushed whispers. And, and perhaps it was one of the strengths of this people, their tight community that led to this problem. Tight, closed communities tend to have major rumor mills. Don't believe me? Just spend a few years at a small private Christian college and you will see. And it seems here that many people did not want to give glory to God for what Paul had been doing in his ministry, but rather wanted to smear the name of Paul because, for whatever reason, they did not like him. They did not want to see him succeed. They did not want to see God working through him. They're making accusations half true at best, and many of them seem to be outright lies. Because they're saying that Paul, who is zealous for the law... Paul, who was trained up under Gamaliel and, and who never repudiates being a Jew, has begun telling people that they should not walk in the traditions of their fathers, saying that the Jews living among the Gentiles, as he ministered, he said, stop doing that stuff, stop doing that stuff, that's not right. This didn't happen. It's not true, and we need to point that out from the very beginning. But people heard Paul, who, who, as the apostle to the Gentiles, did not force Jewish customs and traditions upon them. He taught them there was no reason for them as Gentiles to carry out these, these uh, Jewish traditions. They misunderstood that, perhaps intentionally, to say that he wanted everyone who was Jewish to lose their Jewishness. He wanted to take it away from them. And again, this isn't the moral law we're talking about, whether one should steal or covet or worship idols. Rather, this is what we call the ceremonial law. This is dietary rules, holy days, ceremonial washings. And these things are not necessary for following Jesus. If we understand what they were about, they were pointing forward to Messiah. They were pointing forward to what Jesus would accomplish. And once he was here, once you had the Messiah himself, these shadows of Messiah, these foreshadowings were no longer necessary. They weren't wicked, but they weren't needed. And that is the point that Paul is making. In fact, even when it gets to the human additions to the law, like the things that the Pharisees added that aren't part of the scriptures, Paul says, don't despise the one who keeps these rules. And if you keep them, don't condemn the one who doesn't. The last thing Paul has been trying to do is what he's accused of doing. And of course, not only are these things not necessary, but for many people who had a very pharisaical point of view, the attempt to keep God's laws, all however many hundred of them could be added to and, and uh, kind of massed together, these attempts were, were counter to them actually approaching God. It becomes like when you go to an arcade, and I know this has all changed lately. You do too if you've gone to an arcade. Now you buy a, like a credit card and swipe it and all this. In the good days, in my day, you'd go, you'd go to an arcade and you'd put quarters into a machine, right? And certain arcade games would give you back tickets, especially skee-ball, of which I am a master. And over time, maybe over six or seven hours, you'd pump probably... 80 bucks into these games. And you'd go, wow, now I have 346 tickets. Maybe I can get something really cool. And you'd go up to the counter and you'd look at everything and you'd say, okay, so that like Pikachu 
plushie is 80,000 tickets, and the Xbox is 2 million, and I have 321. Well, trying to keep the law and get enough credits and tickets that way to buy our salvation would be like trying to go up to that ticket counter and say, oh, I see you've got the Empire State Building. How many is that? And every time you bring out your tickets, you find that you've accidentally ripped up half of them. This is a, a pointless effort, and Paul warns against it throughout the book of Romans and throughout much of his writing that we need to understand what Paul understands as he writes in Romans that there is, even with those moral laws, that there, there is a righteousness apart from the law, apart from the law that will credit us the righteousness of Christ. Salvation comes to us not by gaining a whole bunch of tickets, not by winning enough games. We're not playing a game at all here. Rather, we are saved apart from the law, and then what we do in keeping the law is live a life of being filled with and formed by the Holy Spirit, being remade in the image of Christ. It's the fruit of salvation. Paul, having discovered this righteousness apart from the law, suddenly finds himself free, free from the heavy weight of that heavy, crushing yoke around his neck, and now understanding what Jesus meant when he said, my my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and I will give it to you. So there's this rumor going around that Paul is just saying, forget Judaism, that his understanding of grace means that he has completely turned his back on all of his brothers. And notice what happens here. They don't start with a congregational meeting. They don't start by bringing all of the people who want to rabble-rouse in. Rather, it's a leadership meeting. It's the elders of the church, and that's a good idea. Even in Baptist churches where we hold up the notion of uh, the congregational governance of the church, there are times when it makes sense to start with prayer and discussion and seeking wisdom with the leadership of the group and then to bring it to the assembly if needed. You know, you start with a public forum. I think of uh, uh, Parks and Recreation, a television show about uh, a small town uh, kind of municipal uh, government group where every time anything comes up, they have a public forum and there are microphones and there's always montages of people just yelling and shouting non sequiturs. Well, hopefully that wouldn't happen in our churches, but often we want to start with a more, uh, a smaller and more pointed gathering, a chance to seek God in prayer, to seek insight in the scriptures and then guide the discussion when the time comes for the whole assembly to make a decision. And then the big idea comes up, and it seems to come from James himself. We know what you can do to fix this problem, and you're not going to like it. Do then what we say. We have four men who are under a vow. Take those men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in obedience to the law. So take, take these men that are doing this very Jewish thing in the Jewish temple, join them in it, fund their efforts as they, as they carry out this probably Nazarite vow, which is at least 30 days, no wine, no strong drink, no razor to touch your, your hair or your beard, and then take them into the temple, cover the cost of anything, the offerings and all of that, 
and then their heads will be shaved, and everyone will see that you are not an enemy of Judaism. Rather, you consider yourself a follower of the Jewish Messiah, and you continue to be yourself a Pharisee. And just as there was some debate last week with the text about whether it was wise for Paul to go against everyone's advice and go to Jerusalem anyway, there is great debate about whether Paul should have gone along with this or not. He says, okay, let's do it. And some people think that this was a compromise of his principles, a compromise of biblical truth, even. This goes all the way back to Chrysostom. We were talking first, second century. He says this is not compromise, but condescension. Now, for us, the word condescending has a very negative connotation. It's somebody who thinks they're better than you when they're like looking down their nose at you. That's not really condescending. Because if they're looking down their nose at you, they still are above you. Condescending, con means with, descend means come down, is to come down and be with someone. Your doctor condescends to you when he or she tells you what is wrong with you in terms you can understand. If they stayed up and just explained all these medical terms and you were like, I have no idea, that would not be condescending. You say, come on, condescend. Come down and talk to me at my level. Teachers condescend to their students when they get down and explain in terms they can understand what's going on. Parents condescend when they get on the ground and play with their kids. And Jesus condescended when he came down to dwell amongst us. That's the very definition of the term. And that is what Paul is doing then. He's emulating Christ here. He, he is saying, I will do whatever it takes in order to preserve the faith and unity in the church. Now first, I, I want to make, make several different uh, tracks of explaining why and arguing for Paul being uh, not only in the right, but a great example for us here. And to, and to say that Paul is not turning his back on what he believes in for the sake of pleasing men. Rather, he is turning his back on his own pride and embracing humility in order to please God. We've seen that Paul already did something similar without any pressure being applied to him at all. Remember back in uh, chapter 18, there was that little reference that once he arrived in Chantria, he shaved his head because he had been taking a vow and the vow had come to a close. So he's not against this sort of thing. He doesn't have to have his arm twisted. And of course, people who think Paul might be caving here to pressure from James, have you even met Paul? Not going to happen. And remember, Paul has already had Timothy circumcised. Why? Because it's required for salvation? No, in order to keep the peace and not give the wrong message. Later on, he'll say Titus is not going to be circumcised because that would give the wrong message. He's a Gentile, and he doesn't have to be. Now, it's not blasphemous to suggest that Paul might have been wrong here. Paul, being a human, did make mistakes, but Luke doesn't indicate that this was a mistake. And I find what Paul does in cooperating with James to not only be wise, but encouraging. Because these two men have a history. You remember in Antioch what happened between Paul and James? Peter gets caught in the middle. James sends some men there, and they arrive with the, the James worldview, and they find Peter eating spare ribs at the Gentile table, and he immediately says, oh, whoops, and he goes over to the all-kosher, you know, this, this table over here with the observant Jews, and, and Paul says, what are you doing? You're, you're flip-flopping, you're, you're trying to please men, you're confusing the issue, and you're confusing the disciples, and he calls him out on it because, quote, he was clearly in the wrong. These guys have tussled a little bit, and when we see what happens here is as they meet in the middle with a united front, both of them 
are in some sense making a compromise without compromising biblical truth. Paul knows that by doing this, taking this vow, paying for these men to go in and carry out their vow, he's not going to lead anyone astray or cause them to stumble. By not doing it, he might cause someone to stumble. So he gets right on board. It was Paul who wrote in Philippians 2, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others higher than yourself. And Paul is living that out here. In my mind, there is no doubt that both James and Paul had God's glory in view in carrying out this plan, and that Paul was 100% on board without reservation. And the result of it is that God's glory outshined any controversy in that moment. And Satan's plot to divide the church along ethnic and cultural lines, at least in this intersection, at this point, was foiled for a time. And I think that when we look at James and Paul, we see an important tension in the church. You read Paul and he says, by grace we are uh, saved, uh, by grace we are saved through faith, not of works. And then you read James and he says, well, of course, we're saved by faith and works and not by faith alone. You have to have works or your faith is dead. And we say, which one is right? Both of them are right. There's a tension there. And I have often said over the years that we don't want to remove that tension. We don't want balance. We want to embrace the tension. And then it occurred to me just yesterday that if you put things on one of those old school scales like this, what brings the balance is the tension. And maybe that's what we're looking for. Paul's over here in in one of the dishes that's hanging from the scale, and James is over here on this one, and the tension brings everything sort of into balance. And these guys are there to balance one another out, and all of us need that sort of thing. On, On one side, we see James, who believes in Jesus and the gospel, while emphasizing the law and obedience. On the other side, we see Paul, who believes in Jesus and the gospel, while emphasizing liberty in Christ. And throughout the New Testament, both sides provide that tension needed to balance the other off and keep them from going beyond the gospel. James into legalism and Paul into licentiousness and just do whatever you will. There's a tension there. It's a good tension. And we find it anywhere we discover true doctrine. But had it been a different kind of tension, the tug-of-war kind of tension, the don't-you-blow-up-my-bridge kind of tension, think about how badly this could have gone, how disastrous it could have been for the church. It could have been like two guys placing each other under citizen's arrest. Right? Paul, Paul could have become very defensive at this moment. I probably would have. And I don't know if it's an area you struggle in, but the Holy Spirit for more than a decade has been working on this in me because in the flesh, it's so easy to react quickly when people might come to you with some kind of correction or a critique, even if they come with a soft hand and come out of love in the flesh. My first tendency that rises up is defend myself as right without even thinking about it and then perhaps go on the counterattack. And if this has been something that I have done to you, I repent of it, and I beg your forgiveness, but God has been working on me in this way. But even now, as I read this, I almost feel this vicariously for Paul. As James basically says, we've heard rumors that you're doing this stuff. You're not doing it, but to prove that you're not doing it, you'd better go through this elaborate ritual. 
It's going to cost you money. It's going to make it look like maybe you're admitting to some wrongdoing rather than denying it. It's not going to make you look good. But you need to do it in order to get back in the good graces of the people who are spreading rumors about you. I mean, I, I think I'd say, uh, no, I'll pass. And, and then go on the counterattack. James, your theology is wonky. Why are you so obsessed with the law when you've got the grace of Jesus? They could get into that sniping. He could have played the apostle card. You don't know how to rank me, James. You think you're more important because you're Jesus' brother? Sure, I used to persecute the church, but I'd never met Jesus at that point. You grew up under the same roof, and you thought it was crazy until after the resurrection. Go take care of yourself. Then come back, and we can work on me. Paul doesn't do any of that, because Paul doesn't care about winning this situation. He's not building his own bridge. He's not building his own great name. He's building Jesus' name and Jesus' kingdom. He gave a detailed report of what God had done through him, not what he had done. And so if Paul needs to do something that maybe smarts a little, or seems unnecessary, so that God can be glorified amongst the Jews, it's a no-brainer. He's going to do it. And he's going to have to do something that is unnecessary. He's, he's going to have to be purified in order to enter into the temple. Now, the temple is obsolete, and it's going to be gone in just a matter of decades. This temple is not where God's uh, uh, kind of glory, his presence dwells anymore. The presence of God is within believers, and Paul has already been purified. He doesn't need this outward ritual, but he does it, not because it's necessary, but because it's beneficial. But because he loves the, the church, and the unity of the church is something that he seeks and he's zealous for, just as he's zealous for the law. And so Paul is going to have to go, and you read about it in uh, Numbers chapter 6, all that he will have to do. He knew he was already pure in God's eyes, but he submitted himself to this Jewish custom to keep peace in the Jerusalem church. And I struggle with that too. Why go the extra mile when it's my right not to go the first mile to begin with? Jesus said, if, if you are forced to go one mile and carry the equipment of the Roman army that you hate, when they get to that, instead of doing what they would always do, throw it down, maybe spit, say something about Rome under your breath, and go right back to what you were doing, go another mile. You know, show this world power that this Jesus movement is upside down, backwards from anything they've ever known. It's going to grab their attention. I was speaking a couple days ago to a pastor who was talking about how his church had been working so hard to make an impact in the community where they were situated. And then they did a little survey to see how many people knew about their church. Maybe they'd need to increase, I don't know, marketing or something, get, get the name of the church out there. People would know they were a resource. And, and in the midst of this, there was questions about what do you know about the church? And it turns out that everyone around them thought that their church didn't care about the community. And he said, the frustrating thing is we had been doing more than ever to care about the community. Now, maybe you'd say, well, forget it. If we try really hard and it has no effect, then why bother at all? Let's just focus on us. But instead, they went on an even more intentional campaign of reaching out to show their love to the community. The rumors about them not caring were not true. But rather than say, we're right and you're wrong, we do care, they went the extra mile and showed it, even though they shouldn't have to. 
F.F. Bruce wrote, A truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. We can actually be in bondage to our own sense of liberty, our rights that we have in Christ. Being so obsessed with our freedom that it becomes bondage. Paul writes about this in the matter of the weak Christian and the, and the strong. The, the, the weaker brother who, whose conscience is offended and, and caused to stumble by all these things. The stronger brother says, I have the right to do all these things, but I will not exercise it out of deference to you. Because I care more about you and your standing and your faith and not shipwrecking your faith than I care about me and exercising the rights that I might have in Jesus. All things are permissible, not all things are beneficial. Paul loves these people. Probably more than that church loved their community. And he has certainly shown it. He is actually so burdened in his heart for them that not only has he taken multiple offerings up that have taken tons of blood, sweat, tears, time, travel, danger, but now he goes against everybody's advice and risks his neck to go to them and deliver that offering. And what does he find waiting for him there? Slander, accusations, and rumors. And still, he says, I'll do whatever it takes to show that the name of Jesus is to be praised. I'll do whatever it takes to show that the rumors aren't true, that Jesus does love you and care about you. He doesn't want to strip away who you are. He wants to complete who he made you to be. This is something I think the church will need to learn if we're going to continue into an age where Christianity is just another little fringe ideology. As to whether this whole thing works or not, we will see next week. Spoiler, it doesn't. Paul winds up getting arrested. But he knew that was coming, didn't he? He'd have prophets tell him. He'd have the Spirit tell him in every city on the way there. And as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. My friends, are we most bought into the building of our own private bridges, the, the building of our own legacy, the, the project here or there, our own little church, or are we bought into the kingdom of God, willing to sacrifice anything for its being spread? For the glory of God and the name of Jesus and the sake of the gospel, are we willing even to bomb our own projects, our own bridges? Well, we're going to see that even though this particular ploy did not work out exactly as planned, God is still glorified in what happens next. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Lord willing, we'll look at this next week. Same Zach time, same Zach channel. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's example here. Lord, we know that he was fallible, but we thank you that in the Spirit, he was willing to embrace humility rather than insist on his being right. And Lord, we can see with the benefit of hindsight that he was right. His opponents were wrong. But Lord, may we too be more concerned with the lost and with the unity of the church and with the maturing and discipling of the saints than we are with being right or winning an argument. Lord, may we be more willing to set aside our own private interests in the interest of the kingdom and for the sake of the name and the sake of the gospel to be all things to all people that we might win some. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.